Okay, today I'm just outside of Halifax in Yorkshire with uh, Dave Brewer. Thanks very much for agreeing to talk to us today, Dave. For those of you that don't know, Dave is a race course bookmaker, been in the game 43 years. Coming up 44 years, yeah. has witnessed some of the battles between punters and bookmakers on the rails in his time, which we'll go into. Um, I suppose it's fair to say you were best known for working for the late Colin Webster. I was. Life, yeah, yeah I worked for Colin for 31, coming up 32 years. Um, I was very lucky that I got into the game via Colin and I went straight in at the top, so to speak. Most guys have to work their way up back in the day, silver ring, tats, maybe end up working for one of the big bookmakers. I knew Colin's son, David, who was one year older than me. We were friends as teenagers. I got to know Colin and I went straight in at the top, yeah. It was a lucky route. So, how, I mean, what was, how did that happen? I was really friendly with David, his son. Um, David, from being quite young, had always gone racing with his father. Colin was a big greyhound bookmaker in his day. After he'd sold his betting shops, I think there were about 14 or 15 betting shops he sold. Um, he was a dog bookmaker five, six nights a week, Bradford, Manchester, and Halifax had its own greyhound track near the old um, rugby league stadium, Thrum Hall. So, David... Um, his son used to go there as a teenager. I was pally with David. I started going. I was fascinated by the game. Colin always looked the part. Trench coats, trilbies. He had a Rolls Royce with his own number plate. And I thought, I'd like a bit of that. Um, did get friendly with Colin. He taught me tic-tac. Um, unfortunately, David, his son, had lost an arm in his teenage years. Um, so it was Colin who taught me tic-tac. I took to it like a duck to water. I loved everything about the game, from the greyhounds then into the horses, the tic-tac, the moving the money, the, uh, the odds. And yeah, Colin said, do you want to come and work for me? And what was it like going to those meetings and seeing the sort of money that was flying around in those sort of days? I mean, it must have been jaw-dropping. So I started at From All Dogs, moving on from From All Dogs to Ellen Road Dogs, where Colin had a pitch which was a good dog track, and there were three or four very strong bookmakers, Leslie Steele, Bob Kett, Colin, a couple of others. So there was good money at Ellen Road Dogs, and that's really where I learnt my trade. Um, we had two pitches, one at one side of the track where the big money was, and one that David ran at the other side of the track, and I used to tic-tac across to Colin and vice versa. The first race meeting I went to was Cheltenham when I was 18 years of age, so that'll have been 1977 and I was hooked. I just could not believe the amounts of money that were flying around. Couldn't believe the size of bets that Colin was taking, the buzz of the place, everything about the game, I just fell in love with instantly. Love at first sight. And, and what, what was Colin's game then? Did he take these massive bets? What, was he sort of trading them? Was he standing them? Was he taking on punters? What was, he, what was his game? Colin was always a good trader. Um, he'd cut his own teeth as a... Um, bookmaker with betting officers, licensed betting officers. From that, having sold at the age of 40, for quite a substantial amount of money, he realised the way he was living, that wasn't going to be enough to sustain him for the rest of his life. So he went dog bookmaking. And I suppose that's where he laid, uh, he learnt his, his on-course um, skill set. And his skill set was to play big, take people on, but also to trade. If he laid an 8,000 or two, he never thought there was anything wrong with having a 4,500 or 1 back 
So in effect, you've laid a three and a half thousand to one. And if you carry on trading like that, but holding as much money as you can, obviously you need your, your field money in the book to have a, a win or loss situation. But trading, he learned very early on was the way forward. And that's what he did. Uh, and would he, would he respect money so he would have more back if, for example, Barney Curley had, had it than if it was somebody that was a known mug? In his own words, um, as I grew into working along with him and became a big part of the firm, he, he kicked with both feet. He realised that there were a lot of clever people out there and if you just stubbornly took them on, they'd definitely get the be better of you. So he used their money to make his book even better and sometimes he'd add his own money too. So he wasn't just a bookmaker, he became a punter and he became quite a big punter. Obviously the punters out there that will always outdo each other, but in his day, Colin had back horses to win 40, 50, 60,000 pounds, if they were the right price. And we, we all know about the famous ones, which we'll talk about in a bit, but who were the biggest punters back in those days? So right from the get-go, Barney Curley was a punter of Collins. JP, everybody knows JP McManus, he was around back then. Michael Tabor. Michael was a character that wasn't always on course, but when he came, he made his presence felt. Um, Cyril Steen, who, who was um, the man who set up Ladbrokes on the back of his uncle, Maxi Parker. He was a big punter in his own right. Um, there were some colourful characters. Johnny Lights, people that have already been interviewed by yourself. Dudley Roberts was another one. There, there were a lot floating around. So would it be fair to say that the rails were like the front line? So you always would have had somewhere to go. If, so you didn't have to cut Barney Curley. You could take Barney Curley's money and then earn out of it or have a bit on for yourself. Yeah, Barney was pretty cute. Barney bad bookmakers weighed up. So he would never ask an individual bookmaker for more than he thought he would lay them. He wouldn't come up and say, what price is the favourite, Colin? Two to one, I want under grand on it. He might come up and say, two to one. Mm. You fancy laying me a £10,000 bet? He had everybody's measure. Stephen Little, Colin, um, John Turner, Paul Gilliatt, Ron Bolton, all big bookmakers back in the day. Um, and most of the punters were like that. They never really asked for more than they thought they would get off any individual. So Colin would lay the type of bet that Barney had measured him for, and then we'd go to work trading with it, or if Colin felt that it was one that he needed to be with, getting rid of all of it and adding his own to. All right, now you must have been, obviously you said Colin used to have it back, and some. Um, you must have been privy to some of the sharpest information on the course. So how, how were you getting involved personally? So... Um, if you're involved in the game, I think at some point you're going to get involved knowing that if you add your money to it, you're going to earn a bit more than your wages. So I've, probably by the time I was in my early 20s, um, once I'd done what I had to do for Colin, I backed horses myself based on the, the information that passed through Colin's hod. You know, clever people. There are always people attached to stables, for example, such as Dick Hearn, Henry Cecil, you knew that they were part of the stable, connected to the stable. You respected their money. So if Colin put me into back um, with their money and had his own too, I'd add mine too. Once I'd done my job. I never got in the way of Colin's odds. I always had to take the next tier down, which was the right thing to do. So was there a bit of a trickle-down effect? I mean, if you're, if you're a, a tax bookmaker, you, you're going to be keen to lay Brewer or not? I think the whole game back then, before the exchanges, 
was based on who knew what. So everybody wanted to know what was happening. Mickey Fletcher, another guy that you've uh, interviewed, a very good friend of mine, he, um, he used to love me back in horses with him for Colin and for myself, because he took that as a signal to join in as well. A lot of bookmakers kick with both feet. And I'm assuming that um, it wasn't all, they didn't all win. So no. did any, you know, how many days did you go on without any wages? <laughs> That's a really good question. Before I learned um, to be a bit shrewder than I was originally, there were plenty. But obviously nobody likes being skinned. Nobody likes to go home and have to borrow a few quid to buy dinner. Um, I learned very quickly that it isn't all about winning. There are losing days as well. Colin was a value punter. He didn't back favourites. It was a layer of favourites. Even if he'd taken money that said that they should win, he still took his chances with horses at certain odds. He was what I call a middle pin layer. 7, 8, 9, 10 to 1 backer. 12, 14, 16 to 1 backer. The bigger price they were, the more Colin would back them to win. Um, and I became very like that. That's why I'm a layer now when I'm stood on the buffet with short-priced horses. But if I get a little lead... For a 10, 11 to 1 chance, I'll back it myself. Still do. And what, what sort of money at a big meeting? Would, would Colin be standing them then or would he be trying to bet nice and tidy? It was all relative to what amount of money was floating around at any one meeting. Going to Pontefract on a Monday afternoon where I still have a pitch that I bought from Colin when, um, when we parted company, um, you're limited to the amount of money you could take. So that you stood horses in relationship to the amount that you were holding. Royal Ascot, where Colin would be taking 20, 30, 40, 50 grand a race, he'd stand them for a lot more. It was all a ratio. And but what um, older people like us would know for sure, but pe younger people may not realise, a lot of trade money used to fly into the ring back in those days. I mean, you'd see the guys come off the rails because I was always in tats. Yeah. But how much respect would you give to the, to the money from the off course? Would, it, would that be sort of stuff that you'd stick in the hod or would you think that's lively? This well, back in the day, there was, a, there was a thing called the blower. So the blower was for off course people who needed to hedge on course. The big firms had their own representatives. Hills, Ladbrokes, they not only bet on course, they had representatives that shortened up horses for the SP back for the shops. People that had other chains like Gus Demi back in the day had 30, 40 bookmakers. Michael Tabor, the Arthur Prince chain of bookmakers. They would hedge back on course through the blower. It doesn't exist anymore because the exchanges have taken care of that. But the money that came from the blower, you had to respect. Maybe it was run-up money. Maybe occasionally it was a run-up mug bet. But more often than not, it was pretty hot money that was making its way from off course to on course. So you respected blower money. And was there any way of knowing what it, which type it was? Well, the guys that worked for the blower were obviously, I think, um, sworn to secrecy might sound a bit strong, but in the terms of their contract, were probably told not to, you know, say who was doing what. But occasionally relationships were formed between bookmakers and the blower guys where people did know what was happening. And you mentioned at the beginning that you were taught Tic Tac by Colin. So how much business would have been done via the tic? Was it via a tic tac and you were just communicating with them? Me and Colin di directly worked with each other tic tacking. If he laid a big bet, and I'm, I'm going back 40 years, yeah. if he laid a 10 grand bet and he might want rid of half of it, he'd show directly to me what price is the horse. 
we had a twist on the, on the card. So Tic Tacs had a twist card. So instead of the horses being numbered 1 to 15, you made number 3 number 1 and so on, so that the general public didn't know which horse you were talking about. Me and Colin twisted that again. So the twist card that we bought from an independent Tic Tac, we then altered the numbers, so there was only me and Colin working to the same numbers. Um, he would directly Tic Tac to me, asking me the price of the horse. Then he'd give me the go-ahead with our own little slang version for big numbers um, to move that amount of money. I, over my career with Colin, 31, 32 years, we moved millions and millions of pounds. I know that sounds a bit Billy Big Boots, but literally it was millions of pounds. And how many ricks would there have been? In the early days, one or two. Very quickly, um, it's amazing what a narrow band of learning Tic Tac is. I took to it. Um, you've got the number of the horse, you've got the odds, and then you've got the money. So it's three different codes, some that overlap. Um, I did make a couple of mistakes. Um, the worst one I ever made wasn't that big. Um, it was at Beverly. There were 230 chances in the race, joint favourites. I backed the wrong one. And as luck would have it, Colin always had a streak of luck with him. The one that I'd backed, which was the wrong one, won. And I put £600 on it. And he took it in his stride. When I went back and he said, you backed the wrong one, I think I was 18, 19. He said, you backed the wrong one, son. He said, don't worry about it. And then it won. <laughs> um, but no, very, very few mistakes. Once, once I'd got it, I'd got it. And we were playing at such a high level, you couldn't afford mistakes. Um, very quickly, we were moving enormous amounts of money around, especially at the big meetings, Royal Ascot, Goodwood, York, Epsom. So, yeah, there were no room for mistakes. And, and before this part ends, I will point out to anybody watching that any other floor man in the entire world, that wouldn't happen. The other one would have won. <laughs> Nobody wants to talk about the mistakes. I did make some, obviously, but on the whole, I was pretty good at the game. All right, Dave, we've ascertained in part one that you were pretty jammy when it comes to mistakes, but somebody you couldn't make mistakes with was the, the legendary uh, Barney Kearney. Now, you had a bit of a strange relationship with him because he wanted your money, you wanted his money, but realised you probably weren't going to get it, but you used to share lifts and stuff. So can you give us a few Barney stories? Barney was a friend. Um, I met Barney through his dealings with Colin, obviously. He was a punter, a very, very good punter, as I'm sure everybody who was watching... Um, watching this little podcast knows, but he was a friend of Colin's. And on the back of that, I became very friendly with Barney. The man was a legend. I know it's an overused word, but in racing, um, I don't think there'd be many people out there that would disagree. Um, yeah, he wanted Colin's money, not particularly mine. It was Colin's money. Um, I was a part of Colin's machine. I wanted Colin to win. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been in a job. But I also... I had this admiration for Barney that wanted Barney to win as well. It was a real strange conflict that I had going on, wanting Barney to win, but not wanting him to win too much of Colin's money. The man was a great, a great man. And we did become firm friends, along with Mickey Fletcher. Me, Mickey and Barney had a little friendship going on that was, that was all of our own. So you must have had a well-marked card then. Barney was clever. I... I I don't know if I coined the phrase or whether it was a phrase that I heard, but Barney had changed the bowlers. He wouldn't go down the same route every single time because he realised that to keep getting on at the level he wanted to get on with, he had to put different people into back 
horses for him, um, most of which were winners. He didn't back too many losers, Barney. Um, and he didn't always just come straight to Colin. He might go to Stephen Little. He might go to John Turner, who at one point was a big player. Ron Bolton, similar. Michael Tabor came out on the rails for a while and wanted to take people on, including Barney. So he swapped and changed, Barney. He was cute. Nothing that he did wasn't thought out. He didn't get up in the morning and without a plan. Every day that he set out, whether it was just at home in the yard, whether it was something that he was doing eventually, like Daffra, or whether it was backing winners, Barney had a plan. Now, you told me a few months ago now about, um, was it a trip to, trip to Brighton or somewhere where he stayed with Bogner Regis. Bogner Regis. Bogner so, Regis. Yeah. So, um, I've gone down to the May meeting, the three-day May meeting, as it was back in the day, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, um, with Colin for the three days. Colin, by this time, lived down south. He lived um, near Ascot. It was a beautiful, beautiful three-day meeting, weather-wise, this particular May. The year would escape me. Um, and Barney rolled up. Um, Fletcher was there. And before racing even began, Barney said um, to myself, are you staying down? I said, yeah, I am actually. I'm staying with Fletcher. Colin's travelling every day back to Ascot, but me and Fletcher are going to stay down in, um, in Bognor. We've booked a hotel, a little hotel called the Pickwick. Barney says, I'm going to stay down with you. Ring up and book me a room. I said, I don't, so I don't think it'd be a hotel that you want to stay at, Barney. I said, it's uh, a little bit below your standard. He said, Brewer, if it's good enough for you and Fletcher, it'll be good enough for me. Promptly rang the hotel, booked him a room. Um, I think he backed a couple of winners that day. He was in good form. And Colin went off back to Ascot. Me, Barney and Fletcher in my car drove down to Bognor Regis, which was about 30, 35 minutes away. Booked into the hotel and Fletcher said, come on, let's go for a walk. So we set off walking on the front. Halfway along the front, um, I think I said, are we going to stop and have a, have a beer somewhere before dinner? And Barney said, we just need to turn up this street. There's something I need to do. Halfway up the street, we came across the biggest Catholic church in Bogda Regis. And Barney said, just wait here two minutes, boys. I've just got to go in and sort a few things out. So off he popped. Five minutes, turned into 15 minutes, turned into 30 minutes. So I said to Fletcher, I've got to go in and find out what's going on. He said, you can't go in there. It's the house of God. I said, I need to see what's happening. I've walked through the door and Barney's down at the front. Still knelt down. I've walked up to him and I've gone, and he shooed me away. So with that, I've gone back out, went up the street with Fletcher, found a pub with a beer garden, we sat there. Another hour later, Barney walked in, and I said, what happened to five minutes? He said, Brewer, I'm really sorry. When I got in there, me and the big man had a lot more to talk about than I thought. <laughs> and that was his explanation. I said, right, do you want a drink? He said, you can get me an orange juice. So would he, he would never tip you up any winners then? I backed three horses for him in, in, in all the years that I knew him. And there was probably about seven, eight years in between. Three coconuts. Every single one won. Whether I was lucky for him or not, or that was it. Nobody has a 100% strike rate. But with me, Barney had. And he left me six, seven years in between. Whenever I spent any other time in his company, it was like the grave. He wouldn't tell you anything. So much so that I went down to, um, oh, what was the track called? Um, so 
seaside trucking past Newmarket. Yarmouth? Yarmouth. Um, a friend of mine was on business and said, do you fancy going down for the day? Not to Yarmouth, somewhere near. And I noticed that Yarmouth was on. I said, yeah, let's, you'll go do your business. We'll go to um, Yarmouth. I'll ring Barney up and see if he's going, because Barney's always like runs at Yarmouth. Anyway, I rang him up. I said, three days' time, there's a meeting at Yarmouth. I'm coming down. Have you got any runners? He said, yeah, I've got a couple that day. He said, do you want to get me some tickets? I said, brilliant. Can you get me two? He said, yeah, I'll leave him on the, leave him on the door. Ring me when you're somewhere near. So I dropped my mate off. He did his business. We then went on to Yarmouth. And uh, I rang Barney. I said, we're here. He said, come on in. He said, um, we'll go and have a drink in the owners and trainers. So we went in the owners and trainers. And I said, um, two runners today, Barney. Tom Queeley rode them both. Um, he was a big fan of Tom's. Um, I was always disappointed for Queeley that, you know, after um, his amazing association with Henry, um, that he didn't seem to be a fashionable jockey. But Barney liked him and Barney used him. Um, so I said to him, um, should I have uh, a few quid and anything today? And he said, they're both tricky characters, bro. He said, I wouldn't want to uh, encourage you to get embroiled in either of them. So the first one... Um, was quite big odds and it ran accordingly. The second one was an 11 of 4 chance. So I watched Barney in the pre-parade ring. He clocked me watching him and he walked out onto the track, stayed as far away from me as he could, horse cantered down to post. I followed him round when he came back on the track into the, uh, into the grandstand. He found a TV well away from everybody and I stood behind him watching him watch the race. Two furlongs out, it was pretty apparent to me that this was a hold-up horse that was going well within itself and that it was going to win. So a furlong to go, as Queerly pulled it out and went with it, I went up to Barney and said, uh, how much have you had on it? He said, I've only had 40 on it, bro. He said, I, I said, no emotion. He said, it's not a lot of money to me these days. He said, I can't get excited about 40 grand. He said, I've only won 110. I said, oh, well, thanks for the tip, he said. What can I do? I can't be tipping everybody. <laughs> and he was my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and the final story I wanted to know about was I read in a very old magazine that Colin lent him some money um, and Barney gave it to his wife and it turned out that it wasn't quite what it seemed. We had a punter. I couldn't tell you his name. It was a small chap, beard, very neat, very tidy bloke. And he had his first bet with us at Cheltenham. And he had two grand on a five to two favourite in the seal packets, you know, the old seal packets that you used to get from the bank, shrunk wrap, I suppose you'd say, and um, the horse won. Colin, as he always did, gave him the two grand back and he gave him the five grand out of his own money. The next time we saw the bloke, the horse was running at um, Aintree and he, it was, um, I think it was a six to four chance that day and he had two grand on it, £2,000 in seal packets. Horse won, Colin gave him his £2,000 package back in his three grand profit. He then started betting with us on a fairly regular basis. When I say regular, whenever he turned up, he'd be very selective, he'd have a bet. I'd never seen a bloke back as many single winners, all short price ones, in a row. He finally got to York, um, and it was the August meeting, and he had two grand on a horse, and it lost. Barney came along at the end of the day. He said, I'm not, I'm short of readies, Colin. Can you lend me some money? He said, how much do you want? And Barney said, two grand. So Colin pulled out the two grand that the bloke had been betting with us for the whole of that year, backing winners, and gave it to Barney. Next news, Barney gets in touch with Colin. He said, those packets that you gave me, 
had 40 pound at each side so 80 pound in each packet 160 pound in total and then were then filled with some other sort of paper in the middle so the bloke had been having two grand on horses with 160 quid he then turned up um the following month where were we was it at goodwood yeah i think it was at goodwood and um he came across colin said to me go get uh, go get an official we got an official police were involved and he got arrested i actually it's a long time ago and i can't tell you what happened but he did get his collar felt for it and the final thing i wanted to mention about um you were going to mention in the book following the horses finbar slattery finbar slattery i didn't know at all but he was a pal of barney's and he wrote a, a book called um yeah following the horses I believe back in the day, it was um, a Gaelic football manager, which is how Barney loved his Gaelic football. And I think, I think he might have managed Killarney. Anyway, me and Barney were stood chatting at Cheltenham and I'm back in the 80s. And this chap came up and said, now then, Barney, how are you doing? Long time no see. And he said, I'm fine, Finbar, how are you? He said, um, yeah, I'm good. I'm really good. He said, I'm in the process of writing a book. He said, who's this, this young man with you pointing at me? He said, oh, this is a pal of mine, David Brewer, who works for Colin Webster, the Rails bookmaker. And he just happened to say, and uh, how old are you, young man? I told him my age. He said, that means you were born in 1959, which I was. And he said, um, that was the last year that I came to Cheltenham, 1959. Do you mind if I take a picture of you and Barney together? He took a picture of me and Barney. And the book came out some time later. Barney never said a word about the book. But Jack Ramsden, who was another friend of Colin's um, and another legendary gambler um, who, who used Colin to have some of his bets with, came up to me one day at York and said, I've bought you a book. I've been in Ireland and I found this book in a book, book shop. And it was following the horses by Finbar Slattery. The front cover was a hay cart being pulled by a donkey. And sat on the hay cart was Lester Piggott, Barney. Barney's son Charlie, who unfortunately died in a... In a car incident and Finbar Slattery and Barney was sat on the bay of Hale Bay with the reins to the donkey and on I don't know page 36 37 there were a series of pictures and there was the picture of me and Barney and captioned underneath was um, I met Barney with his friend David Brewer at Cheltenham um, earlier this year and the reason I enclosed this picture is David was born in 1959 which was the last time I'd been to Cheltenham until this picture was taken. It was a lovely picture. Oh, Dave, it's interesting that you mentioned Jack Ramsden there because we don't hear much about Jack Ramsden anymore, but of course he was a contemporary of Barney's and he would have been uh, probably putting the fear of God up you lot when, you, when he was having a bet. So what do you remember about him? Jack Ramsden was one of the cleverest men that I've met in uh, in the betting industry, in the betting game. He was a very, very clever punter. And him and Colin, as bookmaker and punter, formed a bond to the point where Colin did a lot of business for Jack. I'm sure not all the business, but he did a lot of business. Um, I think we first came across him. Um, Jack had a horse called Flight of Time that was trained by Barry Hills. And um, the horse won at Ripon. It's many, many, many years ago. Um, it then... Uh, this will get the year for people who are watching. It then went on to be beaten up at Carlisle by a horse called Teleprompter that was trained by Bill Watts that went on to win a Royal Hunt Cup. Um, 
And Jack thought a lot of flight of time. He even backed it to beat Teleprompter that day and it did finish second to it. And Teleprompter proved itself to be a great horse. But yeah, very clever man. Big value punter. Didn't back favourites. Back big prior horses. It was ahead of his time. I think he worked on times. And I think a lot of people work on times now. And average times for different distances. Going allowances at different tracks. Jack got that way before everybody else. And horses that he found back then to back were double price figures. 12, 14, 16, one chances. Now, there are a lot of people finding similar horses based on times, and they're nowhere near those prices anymore. They're 72, 41 chances. As we both know, Simon, you don't need to back too many 14 to 1 chances to make the game pay, whereas you've got to back a lot more 4 to 1 winners to make the game pay. So, yeah, a man that was ahead of his time, great admiration for him. Whenever he had a bet with Colin, and Colin would add his own money too, I added mine. In fact, my first house, um, which was a lovely cottage, two, two little cottages that I converted into one, the whole development was funded by Jack's tips. <laughs> now, there's another Ramsden that was quite famous back in the day. I'm guessing you probably didn't follow his bets in. TP Ramsden, no. Um, Terry Ramsden obviously became very well known because of the size of bets that he um, was having at the time. I think, um, from memory, um, one of the bookmakers he used, other than Hills and Ladbrokes, was um, a northern bookmaker called Michael Garrity. Um, some of his brother's family are still on course, um, Andrew Garrity and Paul Garrity, um, in very good pictures, um, from Cheltenham to Ascot and to many of the northern tracks. But Michael used to bet next to um, Colin on the rails virtually everywhere, and from being a reasonably good bookmaker, very quickly, when Terry got involved and he decided to take him on, he became a very big bookmaker. And I think um, on the back of Terry Ramsden, they made quite a lot of money. So we, this is going to be like, we've only got four parts. So can you give us a couple of your favourite memories from the, from the race course? So many memories. Um, characters, Johnny Lights, um, they were just punters. They were, they worked, they all worked in a similar vein. There were a lot of leads back then. The leads have disappeared. Exchanges mean that a lot of people who are clever sit at home and nobody knows what they're doing. They're playing on the exchanges. Back then, if you wanted a big bet, there were a lot of bookmakers who were out there that were going to oblige. So people with connections came to have a bet and people like Johnny Lights Dudley, Rodley, Dudley Roberts, who was another great character, um, they would follow people around in the ring and join in. It was amazing to see people with nothing other than a newspaper tucked under arm, Racing Chronicle, Sporting Life, now the Racing Post, turn up at the races and make a living just by latching on to who was doing what. And that was one of Colin's big things. He said, you're not just there, Brewer, to move money around and hedge bets for me. Everything you see, I want you to report back to me. I need to put that into the computer and then I can work out whether I want to be a bookmaker on this race or a punter. And many times Colin turned from being a bookmaker to being a punter. If all the pieces of the jigsaws, he called it, fell into the right place, he'd become a punter.
And would Terry Ramsden bet with you guys? No. He bet with the big firms and he bet with the Garretys. He was a losing punter overall. I don't think I'm saying anything that nobody doesn't know. And as such, there wasn't any edging of his money. They just, they call it playing it top of the book. What that means is you're not trying to build a book around it. You're just taking a man on head to head. And I think Ladbrokes did that, Hills did that. And then Garrity, when he started doing business, um, also did that. So no, he had his bookmakers and we weren't one of them. Now, everybody knows about the high profile that we've just talked about. But even from my days of working on course, there was always a couple of small punters, if they came in and had a bet, that would be just as significant. Can you remember many of those? There was a, a guy called Terry Kirk. He ran out the Midlands. I think in his day he was a very good friend of Piggott's. But Terry had a man who nobody ever got to know that did a card that was a winning card. And Terry, I think, sold that card and tissue. A tissue is, is what we forecast prices. So way before computers formulated the markets, which they now do with the exchanges, somebody had to start putting prices on the board. And various bookmakers, Colin included, paid what we called um, tissue price markers to give us a forecast price for each race. And obviously then through the flow of money or lack of it, odds would change. Um, Terry sold the tissue that he got from Mr Anonymous um, to various bookmakers in the South. And I'm almost certain from my memory banks that one of them was Michael Tabor. Michael Tabor got the tissue. But it wasn't just a price issue, it was a, a form opinion as well. And there were a lot of people made money from that card. Um, as I say, I knew Terry spread it out into the market, but I don't know who the man behind it was. Terry would never give that up. Terry was a character. Because it was Neil Wilkins in the safe used to sell his. You get he the did, you get he the did indeed. And yeah. the, and yeah. being the little huddle around. And the southern bookmakers always go so quick that you couldn't keep up and then give you a cuss if you can if you ask them to do it again. But. Absolutely. <laughs> and 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 going back to the Garretys and Terry Ramsden, Michael Garrity at that time had a professional punter called Chris Spencer, who had a golden run. He did his own prices, he went to look at the horses in the paddock, he watched the horses go down, he was ex time form, as was some very clever people that filtered onto the track. Time form must have been a great breeding ground for guys that were really interested in racing, number one, but who were clever, who were really clever and came up with their own handicapping systems. Um, David Haig was another one. In fact, Chris Spencer and David Haig worked for John Banks when John Banks first left Scotland and went down south and had his own um, racing paper that gave up tips. Um, and then John became a legendary bookmaker and, and punter, as we know. But yeah, Chris Spencer was tied up with Michael Garrity and they had a golden run um, of backing winners and laying losers. Chris had a good opinion both ways. If he didn't fancy the look of one in the paddock, didn't like the way it had gone to post, didn't think it moved over the ground correctly that day and it was a favourite, a short price favourite, they'd take a stripe out of it. And they were more right than wrong. And to do, be able to do that in those days, they'd need a friendly bookmaker to take their, to take their few quid out of it for them. That's they? right, that was his connection with Michael Garrity. And how many punters appeared and appeared to be to have a be Mystic Meg's son or whatever and back winner after winner and then just knock themselves out? I mean, did they, you see any sort of glory um, sort of go down in flames? So, too many to mention. It's a funny, it's a funny, life's a funny game, but 
racing is, is a mirror of life. People have a streak of luck and you think, is this guy a genius or are they just on a, on a lucky run? Well, as the story unfolds, you very quickly learn whether they're very clever and they're consistent at backing winners or they've just had a lucky run and it goes the other way. I've seen some real su overnight success stories turn into uh, losing punters that have walked off the track with a tail between their legs. Did you, it's did a great you, level of racing. Did you quite often see it coming where the stakes only gone up from a bottle to a monkey to a grand to five grand? Chasing was always a sign of a, of, a, of a losing punter. A man who was a £200 punter and backed his winners never increased his bets. But when he started losing, it was amazing how he increased them to try and win his money back. And that's when the writing for me was on the wall. When a man started increasing his stakes for no logical reason. And you mentioned some trainers earlier. Would there have been any particular trainers that you would all up off the stool and follow in? Um, Kinghorn, um, Alan Kinghorn used to work for um, Playboy um, before he came out on his own. I believe Victor Lounsel was sent over um, by Hugh Hefner to look for opportunities in gambling in the UK. Um, came across Alan Kinghorn when he worked for a firm called Heathorns. Michael Heathorn, who had a bookmaking presence off course and on course. Um, and Kinghorn tells some great stories of um, when he worked for Heathorn, Paul Cole, Dick Hearn, really good trainers. When they put their money down, everybody wanted to follow them. Guy Harwood, some really, really clever people, not big players either. But when they put their own money down, horses that they trained, people joined in. Now, you used to bet, obviously, in the big meetings at the North, but Colin would come down, as you mentioned, Cheltenham, Royal Ascot, yeah. Goodwood. What, which were the strongest meetings? Colin bet, in his day, from air in Scotland down to Goodwood on the south coast, we travelled as a team between 80 and 90,000 miles a year for those 31 years. The festivals were where the money came came out. So from the Gold Cup meeting up in air, um, which is in September, down through York in August, down to Ascot, Epsom, all the big meetings to Goodwood in August, that's where you saw huge amounts of money. The run of the mill meetings, you only saw a big bet when somebody knew a bit more than you. Now, you, your job on the rails, you mentioned doing tic-tac. Obviously, the tic-tac thing sort of died when the walkie-talkies came in and that sort of stuff. What, what, what would you say your most important role on the firm was? Was it like a spotter or a get-a-backer-honour or what, what was it? It was a dual role. Um, for me, it was moving money. It was edging money. But alongside that, it was letting Colin know what was going on in areas of the ring that he couldn't see. What amount... What, where the money was going and who was placing that money. Not everybody went straight to the likes of Colin and Stephen Little to have a bet. They used to move around the ring. So if I saw something that Colin hadn't seen, it was important for me to let Colin know that Joe Bloggs was having a bet and it was a fairly decent bet and it was with the trainer that he's connected with. And Colin put all that into his own computer, as he used to say, looking for the jigsaw pieces. Now, was it is a very highly charged, even the little bookmakers I used to work for is very you know you get pretty stressed at times and a bit tense and stuff Would, was it ever run of the mill for you or was it always that edgy 
you know, every day was an exciting day. Working for Colin Webster was an exciting place to be. He took on big punters. He played at the top end of the game, both as a bookmaker and a punter. There was a lot of information flowed through Colin. Um, and as such, I became a backer of horses as well. There wasn't a bad day at the office. Colin was cool. He was calm. He was collected. You would never know, ever, whether he'd won or lost. He was unbelievable in the heat of the moment. And that spread off him to his staff. Nobody seemed to, to lose control of what we were there to do. And I hope that that's how I've tried to be since. Uh, and once you, so you mentioned that you had a, bought two houses, locked them in together off the back of some winnings. So was ultimately your job with Colin secondary to your punting? Yeah. I mean, Colin always looked after me. He treated me like a second son. I think the whole racing world knows that. Um, but there's only so much you can pay anybody in any role. I had a company car. I had health, um, health insurance with him. We went away on holiday. I didn't just work for Colin. We were friends, really good friends. But the information that we got to know for a substantial period of those 32 years enabled me to more than triple, quadruple my salary every year. All right, Dave. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's quite a few stories you can't mention, but it was a, a very sort of high-pressure job that you did, especially at the big meetings, and you all stayed away, and you all had a few quid in your pocket. So dare we suggest that it was a bit of a work-hard, play-hard environment back in, your, um, in the golden days? <laughs> yeah, there are a few stories that I can't talk about, um, but, but I'll, I'll, I've got one that I can. Um, it was work-hard, play-hard. There was a lot of pressure at the big meetings. We knew when we were going to Royal Ascot. We knew when we were going to the Derby. We knew when we were going to the big festival at um, Goodwood in August that there were going to be some big punters there and the stakes were going to be high. And obviously, we were there to do a job for Colin, all his staff, including his son David, who was my friend. Um, and occasionally, you needed to release of an evening the pressure of what had gone on during the day. So it's a Royal Ascot story. We'd been there the Tuesday and the Wednesday. So the following day was Gold Cup Day. And halfway through the afternoon, David said, do you fancy a night out in London? That's Colin's son. And I said, um, yeah, whatever. So he said, OK, end of racing. Me and you are going to go into London. We'll have a night out, then get back to the hotel. During the course of that day, um, we backed a few losers between us and uh, we were short of readies. So David went to his father and said, uh, me and Brewer are going to go into London for a night out. Um, we need a few quid. So Colin gave him 200 quid. This must be 30 years ago, by the way. And David said, 200 quid, Dad, we're going to London. Give me a grand, we'll bring the change back tomorrow. Colin looked at him, but gave him the £1,000. We got a lift into London with uh, one of the London bookmakers. It was a lad called Steve Wilson, actually, who worked for Victor Chandler. Dropped us off in London. Went out, had a few beers, had a bite to eat. Ended up in Stringfellas, which was the big nightclub in London at the time. I don't need to go into too much detail, but we arrived back at Royal Ascot for the third race on Ladies' Day, Gold Cup Day, and we didn't have a penny left. That was a big night. And Colin, his face was thunder. Wasn't a happy chap. 
<laughs> he's probably lucky he was with his son, wouldn't he? <laughs> <I> think, <laughs> if it hadn't been the fact for the fact that I was with his son, I might not have been on the firm after that. <laughs> so did, did you ever did you ever rep Colin on your own? Yeah. So as time went on, Colin, Colin taught me everything I know about the game, including the way he played. It was a tradition. When he wasn't backing horses, if he didn't think he knew something that was value to be with, he was a traditional bookmaker. He always wanted the favourite to be the worst. Maybe the second favourite, a loser as well, and so on and so forth, to have in rags winners. Or he might have a second favourite more than on his side than he should do if, if he felt that, he, that the information had led him down that path. But what I'm trying to say is he eventually trusted me enough to let me rep for him. He lived in the North for many, many years, but eventually he realised that the big business at that time was down the South. So he made the move to Ascot. Myself and David and all the other staff still stayed in the North. So we used to travel down or Colin travelled up for us all to work together as a team. But there were still a lot of meetings in the North that he didn't want to come to because he was down South. In fact, he lived on the Wentworth estate, the golf estate, and he became a member at Wentworth. He was a great golfer, Colin. Played off two, three handicap in his day um, and played golf right into his 80s. Um, but yeah, I rep for him at York. I rep for him Ponty. I rep for him at all his northern tracks. There were, there were splits. There were days when Sandown was on. There were days when York was on, which probably leads me on to um, a day at York and Sandown where Colin said, well, you stay up in the north with it, one team and I've got my southern team down here. We had about five big punters at the time. Colin said, we'll probably get two or three at one and a couple at the other. So that was the plan. I forget which meeting it was. It wasn't one of the big meetings, but it was a Saturday meeting, and all Saturday meetings at York were good. So um, I arrived at York with the Northern team, and um, one by one, I saw all five punters before the first race. So I rang Colin up. I said, everybody's here. I said, all five of the big punters are here. And he said... Right, you're going to have to play. I said, well, what do you mean you're going to have to play? He said, you're going to have to take them on. And let's hope, you know, things fall in our favour. So have you got any leads? So we went through the card. He had a couple of leads, a couple of marks, a couple of horses that he thought might be valued to be with, a couple of horses he thought might be valued to be against. Everything fell for me. They were all playing. They were all playing every race. I couldn't have done it more right if somebody had given me tomorrow's paper with the results in. And it was the best day I'd ever had for him. I won him £58,000. So after, he never rang me during, during the day. After racing, he rang me. He said, how have you gone on, lad? I said, I've won 58. He said, oh, that's good. He said, I've won a couple of grand down here. He said, so that's £7,800. That'll do us. I said, no, I've won £58,000, Colin. He said, what? I said, I've won £58,000. He said, Brewer, how much have you won? I said, I've won £58,000. He said, you better take an extra gram for yourself. I said, I've already done that, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> Everything fell into place. The results were unbelievable. And a couple of races where the results were bad, I'd just jinked the right way. Now, we do it after all this fun we've had. We don't want to get into the negativity, but things obviously changed when it changed for everybody else with the advent of the betting exchanges and stuff. I mean, how drastic a change? Was it gradual or did you suddenly, with a matter of a few months, think, I mean, this has all gone a bit... Um, there were a couple of things happened in fairly quick succession. So there'd been a movement for years to try and get um, rails bookmakers to have boards like the ring bookmakers. And it never looked like happening. But there was a final push when John Banks was chairman of the Rails Bookmakers Association, where they finally managed to convince the powers that be, the race courses, 
to allow Rails bookmakers to have boards like the ring bookmakers had always had so they could show the prices as opposed to just having to be asked and having the price on a tick on a tic tac card and also quickly followed by the buying and selling of pictures prior to that it had been dead men's shoes it was always a father and a son if somebody died who didn't have a son to come into the business that pitch became vacant and everybody moved up one including somebody on the waiting list moving on to the official list it was slow movement and it made for very little change those two things changed things a lot followed then by the bombshell that was betfair and the betting exchanges how did betfair first grab hold it seemed fairly gradual but then overnight having been around for a while it just became the machine that it is now and it altered things in a big big way it was the bookmakers bible the prices that we put on our boards were prices that we'd taken from the exchanges with a little bit of margin in our favour. There were people that were backing prices, horses in the morning that they thought were a big price and then laying them back to the exchanges during the afternoon. It became a game changer. A lot of people would say, for the worse, I'm a bit on the fence. It, it, some things became negative because of it. Other things became positive because of it. The prices that we now put on our board give punters a, a much better chance of, of backing winners than they did before. Bookmakers had a bigger margin on the boards pre-exchanges. Because exchange prices are out there on the web, we have to be um, much fairer to punters with our prices than we ever used to be. Now, we've talked about Colin all the way through this. Sadly, he died. How long ago was it he... Yeah, I know exactly when he died. I'll never forget it. It was such a big part of my life. So I was born on the 29th of August, 1959. I mentioned that earlier. And I, not personally, um, but Colin was buried, cremated, laid to rest on the 29th of August on my 60th birthday. So in, in 2019. So he died about the week before that. He, he died late August 2019. And I think he was 84. He had a great life. He was a great, great bookmaker, a fantastic human being, a good amateur golfer. He enjoyed his life. Nothing yeah. to come back for. And now you're a bookmaker in your own right. Fair bet. Yeah. Um, it's a bit of a play on words. Isn't it, it is a play on words. <laughs> Most people call themselves David Brewer Racing. They call it the, the, the business after the cells. At the time, fair bet, bet fair was all the rage. It was on everybody's tongue. So when I set up on my own, which was about 14 years ago, um, I think I was about, yeah, 48, 49, um, I just decided to call myself Fairbet, twisting Betfair around. And um, I've used that brand ever since. Although I do have David Brewer Racing registered with the Gambling Commission if I ever want to change. And, and I mean, can you play like Colin? I, the, I don't think the game allows you to play like that now. There are one or two bookmaking firms out there that play big at the festivals. A lot of the midweek stuff now, there's nobody about. You've just got people going for a day out, pensioners, couples. Um, it's all small stuff. You're waiting for the Saturdays to come along. You're waiting for the festivals to come along. Out of the pictures that I've got, I probably go to a third, maybe a little bit more than a third of the days that I actually could go to. I stick to the Saturdays. I think to the festivals. Um, 
I don't do enough days racing to play with gay abandon, day in, day out. On a Saturday, I try and play. I try and make good bucks. I try and hold money. But during the week, not that I go much during the week now, whenever there's a big bet appears, they tend to win. They know more than you. There are no mug punters floating around during the week. And if there are any mug punters, it's an unfortunate word, mug punters. If there are any losing punters, bookmaking firms latch onto them and try and keep them. There are not dozens and dozens of them like there used to be when Colin was in his, when his, when he was in his pomp. Okay. Um, there's a lot more cash floating around. There were some good cash businesses. We had a punter that had a dozen, um, we called him Arthur the Butcher in the book, that was his nickname. He had a dozen high-class butcher shops in, in North Yorkshire, Harrogate and surrounding areas. He used to come and he used to be a good monkey punter, a 500 pound punter, three or four times a day. Um, and he might come two or three times a week. There were good publicans. There was that sort of money floating around. Doesn't exist anymore. We're becoming, to a large part, a cashless society. Bookmakers are now taking debit card bets. If somebody had said that to me 10 years ago, I'd have laughed. But you've now got, you know, to, to be a part of taking money, you've got to take debit, debit card bets. Right. Now, I don't know if you don't mind me mentioning it, but you've had the biggest winner of your life recently because you've been ill and now you're better. So yeah, I've been really lucky on two occasions. Um, 2014, I thought I was the fittest 55-year-old around. I had a perforated bowel, which um, resulted in me collapsing, um, being incredibly ill, major surgery, um, woke up with a colostomy bag, but woke up having um, got, had sepsis, septicemia and peritonitis. I survived that, um, got reversed in 2019, back to living a normal life, only to be diagnosed with throat cancer in early 2020. I went through radiotherapy during 2020 and touch wood, as all us gamblers like to, uh, to say, I'm, I'm back to full fitness. I've had five all clears and yeah, life's good. And would you say finally that you're, you're going racing when you enjoy it? Racing's been your life. You don't need to go racing, I assume. Um, I still love the game. It's been a huge part of my life. It wasn't, it wasn't a career, it was a life choice. It wasn't just a job. It was a way of having an, an amazing, a, a, a way of getting a living and having an amazing life. The colourful caravan that racing was back then was an amazing thing to be part of. Um, I look back on it all with fondness. Obviously, we all slow down. Um, I don't go as much as I used to do, but as long as I'm fitting well, I'll still go as an on-course bookmaker. Brilliant. Well, Dave Brewer, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon.